What's up, everyone? This is episode 214 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Okay, so last Thursday was opening day for baseball, and yeah, that's a really weird way to start a basketball podcast, I know, but over the course of the next couple years, you can come to expect more of that because I think it'd be wise to pay attention to what Fanatics is doing in that space. I think it could give us some valuable insight into some of the things they're likely to try with basketball as well, one of which they implemented this past week when Tops and MLB announced their plans for what they're calling the Ultimate Rookie Card. And on their social media platforms, they wrote, Starting today, every player making their MLB debut will wear an MLB debut patch on their uniform for the first time. That patch will then be used to create the ultimate one-of-one rookie card. And a lot of you sent this story to me, and you know I talk about patches all the time. You knew I would appreciate something like that. So first off, thank you. Um, Now, I don't think it's this, you know, once in a generation thing that they've been pitching this as, but, um, you know, overall, I think it's a good thing. And going into this, I assumed that this would be universally applauded in the hobby. And there were some detractors, though, and that's fine. Everyone's entitled to their opinions. The biggest complaint I saw was that people were worried that the players wouldn't be able to keep their debut uniform. But from the way the announcement read to me, they were, you know, just taking the patch or even if they did take the whole jerseys, have the player change into another jersey after a couple innings. It's not that big of a deal. I I know there are NBA players that like to wear a couple jerseys a game, and that's not even for cards. That's just their personal preference. So if these guys really want to keep their jersey, if that's a big deal, fine, they're going to have to wear two, because the Players Association is supposedly very involved in this new agreement that uh, looks to better connect the players to the fans. Now, my opinion is that something like this is a huge step in the right direction. And I know Topps has already done some cool stuff with the MLB certification sticker in baseball products before. I own some of those relics, and they're great. But as you know, the situation with basketball is very different. I'm to the point where I'm looking at Benedict Matherin relics on eBay and looking at the back of the card and and really just hoping they're player-worn, although I know they're not going to be. You know, at this point, they're definitely still not probably won't be anything until flawless. If I would have said that five to six years ago, you would have thought I was crazy. But the bar for relics right now, at least in basketball, is extremely low. So not only is Fanatics here and Tops here giving us a patch that's game-worn, it's from a very specific, meaningful game for that player. And that is like the exact opposite of the non-associated stuff people have been complaining about for several years now. And yes, there's probably only one patch per player. And yes, they're probably going to be super expensive. But before you complain about that, I want you to think about the bigger picture here. This type of move to me is indicative of some of the other stuff they're looking to do moving forward. And if they can use baseball as the guinea pigs to iron out all the wrinkles, you know, for me as a basketball collector, nothing against baseball, But as a basketball collector, that's even better. So to all the people that reached out to me via social media to ask what I thought about this, I think it's awesome. And I really think it's a great step moving forward. 
Speaking of steps, I suppose I should take a few moments to talk about a company that's entire recent history seems like a series of missteps, and that's Beckett. And I know this has been discussed quite a bit already this week. If you're like me, you get tired of seeing the same hobby stories regurgitated again and again, but I think it's worth discussing real quick because it follows a recent pattern that I've been hitting on with some of these big hobby companies as recently as last week when I talked about Alt. So, as part of Beckett's big display at the Mint Collective in Vegas, they showcased a giant gold label that said in all caps, The New Gem Men is Here. Updated grading scale, same world-class standards. And then there were four 9.5 subgrades with a 10 Gem Mint overall grade. Of course, that got people talking. In fact, it was goofy enough that a lot of people thought it might be an April Fool's joke which in hindsight, they probably should have just said, yeah, that's what it was, but, you know, it wasn't funny, so they would have looked incompetent either way. Well, after they saw all the negative reactions, they put out an announcement that more or less said, hey, it's changed. Now if you get 495s, it's going to be Mint Plus, but if you get one or two 10s, it will be a Gym Mint 10. That was advertised. And just know that's not a direct quote. I'm paraphrasing here because their original attempt to clarify via video on Instagram cut off before all the information could get out. It, it looks like whoever runs their social media doesn't understand the platform very well. But eventually the full version got out. And my favorite part in all of that is uh, that someone on their marketing team had to modify their big display they made up and turn one of the nine fives into a 10 so it would be up to date. And you could see on there that they had, you know, taped that 10 over the nine five. And that's another indication that this probably wasn't thought out um, as well as it should have been, or at all. And that was more or less confirmed with yet another update after that, that read, quote, After listening carefully to the feedback you all shared, we have decided not to make any changes to our grading scale at this time. We will keep you updated with an official announcement later next week regarding improvements to our grading scale. Now, I've talked about BGS numerous times on this show before, on episode 179, I talked about their slab fiasco at last year's National. You know, it was all excuses. Well, the design team did that, and they're separate from the card people. Left hand, right hand. Which culminated in me saying I thought they were undergoing a bit of an identity crisis. There just didn't seem to be a lot of direction at the company, especially not from card people. And this was all after the new CEO said he wanted to have open dialogue with collectors, which if they had actually done that prior to all this, it probably would have pointed them in the right direction. So it makes it all the more puzzling to me that in their little video explanation on Instagram, Beckett's representatives said they ran this most recent decision by hobby participants. We ran this by the hobby. Does that sound familiar to you? Remember last week when Alt told us their 20% buyer's premium was vetted by people in the hobby? Sure didn't seem like it after the announcement had been made. Which begs the question, and I posted this in my stories this week, once again, who are these companies talking to? And there's a part of me that I guess respects Alt a little more, not much, mind you, but I respect them a little more because they saw the response to their decisions and they were undeterred. It was just full speed ahead. But this is twice now that Beckett has seen major backlash from the collecting community and immediately did an about-face. And on top of that, this time it looks like they flat-out lied to us and told us that they ran this by people in the hobby ahead of time. 
So if Beckett actually wants to get input from people, I'd love to run this by them. If you tell us you're talking to people in the hobby, we need to see it. Let us in on at least some of those conversations. And when I say us, I mean people in the hobby, not me specifically. But let us see these conversations play out. And then if you actually already are talking to people in the hobby, whoever you're talking to, just know they've been giving you really bad advice. Find someone else to talk to, even if it's just putting a poll out on Instagram and Twitter. That might be a good place to start. But I would say you have to tread carefully at this point because your brand recognition in the hobby will only carry you so far. And it seems like at the moment, it's affording you a lot more chances than you would normally get. Okay, this is normally the spot where I would put my mail segment. I'm going to skip out on that this week, or I should say rather postpone it. I've got a couple cards I still want to talk about, but I figure it might be better to save them for another time because I wanted to devote the majority of today's time to a conversation I recently recorded with Tim Gallagher about the history of basketball sneakers, uh, and that's pre-Jordan. I figured that would be a good conversation to pair with the release of the new Air movie, so you want to make sure to stay tuned today to learn some of the context about basketball sneakers prior to that time. Before I play that for you, some of you have asked me for ways you can help support this show. The easiest way is my eBay affiliate link. And using this link costs you absolutely nothing, just an extra 30 seconds or so of your time, but it helps support the show. To access this link, simply go to waxmuseumpodcast.com, click the eBay logo, shop as planned, so whatever you're going to buy anyway, just click my link first, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. This is Slick Leonard. You're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Boom, baby! Okay, joining me today is someone that's been on the show a couple times before, but not since the first 100 episodes. And regardless, I've talked about him quite a bit over the last couple years, because you might even remember the story of him helping me acquire the final card for my signed 72 top set, which I'm still very happy to finish that project, long project, um, and that's one that he got signed himself, by the way. Now, needless to say, we've stayed in touch since then. We met up at the National in 2021, and I'm really excited to have him back on the show. Tim, how's it going? Hi, Kyle. It's a pleasure to be back on, and congratulations on your extended run. Uh, who knew when we talked a few years ago what was ahead? I think the pandemic was just starting it was, uh, yeah. Around that time. And so a lot's changed since then. And you know, I'm working in the hobby now, not just a collector, but uh, you know, working for REA auctions. And so get to have my hands in this every day for both business and pleasure, which uh, I'm quite thankful for that. I think that's uh, probably safe to say every collector's dream to be able to do something like that. So I'm very happy for you. And I know all of your years of collecting and experience has paid off here. Um, and you mentioned one of your previous appearances here. And, and just in case anyone missed your last two appearances on the show, or just in case anyone needs a refresher, you've been in the hobby for over 50 years. And we talked about that all on episode 70. And um, I would say a lot of your collection would be, you know, formally classified as vintage. I don't know if you technically would call it that or not. 
Um, but I, I think it's safe to say it's vintage basketball stuff, including the majority of your top 10 list, which we talked about on episode 80. Now, it's been almost two and a half years since you've come on the show. And I feel like a lot of the stuff that you're looking for, either you've already got it, right? Because you've been doing this a long time, or it's just really hard to find. So have you been able to add much to your collection these last couple of years? Uh, I have been. Well, you know, autographs are my primary interest, you know, and on cards if possible, but although modern cards, not so much. And and I kind of enjoy the chase, meaning getting it signed in person or through the mail myself. Uh, obviously, there's exceptions if there's that's the only way you can obtain a, a certain autograph of someone that's passed away or certain players today are all, almost impossible to get access to unless it's, our, you know, a signed card that, you know, maybe is in a pulled pack or limited edition or they're under contract with Panini or whatever to sign a certain amount. So there are some cases where that's the only way to get them, but I kind of like being out on the front lines. I don't get to do it as much as I used to and kind of pick my spots, but you know, still enjoy getting things through the mail, You know, focusing more on retired players. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners are working off some of the same lists and seeing who answers or who charges a nominal fee and things like that. But either kind of you know backfilling some things I might have missed or upgrading on, on certain cards. And then in person, you know, probably focused more on higher level college players that I see as either potential NBA players down the road or just players I really enjoy watching and maybe getting them on an eight by 10 or an index card. Yeah, it's always fun um, through the mail. Occasionally someone just out of nowhere decides uh, even like you said, even if it is for a fee, they decide they're going to start signing again. Like we saw that with Dave Bing over the last couple of years, artist Gilmore, he decided he was going to start signing more again. So uh, always fun when those guys pop up, like Bob Cousy has been a signing machine these last, I don't know how many years now, um, but you know, for a while you couldn't get them. So it's just exciting when those things happen. And, and for whatever reason, there's a, a change of mind or a change of heart. Right. Hopefully they have some realization of how happy that's making us as collectors, yeah. right? And, uh, in the, you know, and hopefully it's bringing them some enjoyment as well to be recognized and remembered. And, you know, I know when I write to someone like Bob Cousy to, you know, just remind him of how significant a figure is he is in the game, in the game's history and sports history, really. Right. Can't just bring him up just to compare him to someone else or to, you know, a lot of times I think the the media will bring up older players just to elevate the newer players. It's not necessarily to give the older players their due. So uh, we have to do that. Uh, and, and thankfully, you know, there are historians like yourself that help us to do that. Now, um, another thing about sending cards through the mail is that it gives you another reason or a, another way to enjoy that card. So it kind of gives those cards a second life. You know, you enjoy chasing them unsigned in the first place, and then you get to get them signed a little bit. And um, we're going to do an exercise today that um, will maybe allow some people to enjoy some of their cards that they already have or enjoy some cards that are out there in a new light as well. So to give um, the background for today's conversation, it was all the way back in November, and I didn't even realize it had been this long ago, but you reached out to me with an idea for a podcast, and we've been going back and forth, and you wanted to talk about the first time that different sneaker brands appeared on basketball cards, and then that kind of evolved into the history of, of sneakers in general, and um, I'll tell the audience what I told you. I'd love to talk about this stuff, but you're going to have to drive most of the conversation because I just don't know a lot about shoes, but uh, it's a great idea for an episode and, and I love learning. So especially with this new Nike Air movie coming out. So I guess before we get into the cards, how about you give us a brief history of the evolution of basketball shoes from the early years 
up to the Nike explosion. And then we can use the cards to get into specifics after that. For sure, Kyle. Well, and just as you mentioned, it gives the listeners another way to enjoy their cards. Maybe they hadn't really even looked closely at what kind of shoes a player was wearing in in the card. Although one of the things when we first started talking about this and researching it, it was kind of striking how many cards don't have shoes shown on them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that makes sense in some ways because it might be more of a portrait type card or a close up where you're not having a distant image where the shoes are even visible. But anyway, yeah, what kind of sparked the idea? I think it was the Johnny Egan 1969 tops where he's got his Adidas superstars on. And as I was looking through, I remember how impactful that was for me at the time, you know, being a a young kid at the time, but an aspiring player. And wow, there's somebody not wearing Chuck Taylors. Like here's a new style, a new look. It was very intriguing, but uh, we'll get to that uh, later. But yeah, kind of the very broad evolution of of basketball shoes. You know, it kind of started in the early days of the game with the, you know, Converse was kind of the the gold standard, right? The Chuck Taylor Converse that are now a fashion-oriented shoe. You see them every day, everywhere. But again, back when, when they first were designed, it was for basketball. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of the standard and, you know, either... Uh, the high tops or low top, the white canvas, uh, there was some black. The urban legend has it, and I've read a few things online that why the Celtics chose black and Red Auerbach, who was obviously the architect of that team on and off the court in every little detail, thought they didn't show the dirt and his wear as, as readily. And probably just for uh, aesthetics and, and practicality, the black shoes lasted longer, looked better. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so Converse, and there were a few others, Keds or BF Goodrich, you know, PF Flyers, those kind of shoes. And you'd see old ads. We're going to focus on cards today, but you could look at old ads as well, where maybe George Mikan is promoting a, a certain kind of shoe. Uh, I don't know if that was the shoe he wore in games that he was playing, but you know, Converse was really the standard and had a monopoly on the market. Really, it wasn't until the late 60s where you started seeing some other styles and kind of around the time that those 69 tops came out. And again, the two cards that really kind of jumped out to me were the Johnny Egan and the Lucius Allen, where they're wearing the Adidas superstars. And of course, you'd see in basketball magazines and what few games were on TV, occasionally there would be something other than a Converse shoe being worn, but not typically. Really up until the late 60s, that was about all you saw. And you know, some example cards just for our listeners to to look at. You know, the obviously Bob Cousy was one of the legends and pioneers uh, we just talked about. And on his 57 Tops card, you can see he's wearing his black high tops. And the 61 Fleer in action card, you can see his black high tops as well. Those would be kind of the standard and prototypes. Certainly for the Celtics, it would always have been black. For the other players, you could see some examples of, I know in the, the 81 TCMA set, uh, I, I saw the Dave Bing, Rick Berry, Nate Thurmond. Again, some of those shoes from a visual standpoint are, are kind of sweated out and don't look so great, but <laughs> right. that was that was what they wore. And they wore them probably for a good part of the season, right? Until they probably literally wore out where now I'm sure Steph or LeBron is wearing, if not one new pair of shoes each game, maybe they're switching at halftime. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how prevalent it is, or then they're trading shoes with guys on the other team after the game, like they're trading jerseys. And, it, it, you know, back in the day, it's kind of like the, they got a couple of home and couple of road jerseys, the last of the season, the shoes were probably wear them till they're in shreds. So you mentioned the, the Chuck Taylors then and how that was pretty common. And, and you mentioned Koozie wearing that. Um, so then we had 
uh, a big gap in basketball cards, not necessarily sneakers, but a big gap in basketball cards from 61 to 69. Of course, I know there was cons and there was some regional stuff in there as well. Would you say for the most part, though, in those gap years that the the Chuck Taylors were still the the main shoe in that time frame? Absolutely. Yes. And you could probably look at any images online or find an old basketball magazine from the, you know, the mid 1960s. And if someone wasn't wearing Converse, it would be an outlier for sure. So then you mentioned the 69 tops and you mentioned Johnny Egan and and some of these other guys in the uh, Adidas shoes, which now Adidas is, you know, obviously a household name. How common were Adidas shoes then? I mean, I know they had been in other sports as well. Had they gained popularity a lot earlier in those other sports, maybe? Uh, No, not so much. I mean, Adidas as a track shoe, for sure. And I encourage our, our listeners for additional research. I mean, even the Adidas story itself. So the founder, Adi Dossler, you know, that's where Adidas comes from. It's a guy's Mm -hmm. name, Adolf Dossler, who went by Adi. And then he had a brother and they had a falling out. The brother left. I mean, this didn't happen overnight. It happened over a a long period of time, but he left and started another shoe company, Puma. So really two two brothers were two of the key shoe designs, you know, as as we kind of hit the, say, night around 1970, right? It was a little before that. Adidas had been around a lot longer than that, but not in the basketball market. So Adidas started to become a little little more prevalent. And the thing that was different too, is they were leather shoes. Okay. So again, the Converse were just canvas up to that point. Um, And again, that would start to change here. Early seventies, things uh, really started to open up. It was slow change, but Adidas kind of crept onto the scene. And uh, I know from a, a young person buying the cards and noticing every single little detail, you know, when those Dita superstars showed up on a couple basketball cards, that really was exciting. And it kind of showed that there was some change afoot. And then kind of w- around the time the 73 top set came out, which the cards were much more uh, you know, varied, I guess you'd say, in, in styles and images. And uh, and it was not coincidentally the first year they had the license, you know, tops had the license with the leagues where they could show the full uniforms and didn't have the, you know. <laughs> The, the funky uh, backward jerseys, backwards, backwards jerseys or practice jerseys. Although, again, some of the charm of, of those oddball cards make them kind of cool in, in some ways. Although some I never quite got comfortable with them just because it looked off. Yeah, the, the Wilt Chamberlain sticks out to me, the 72 Wilt. I love that card, but at the same time, man, that weirds me out with that jersey flipped around. Right, exactly. And so around the time of the early 70s, Pro Keds started making a little bigger impact. They signed Pistol Pete. You know, so when okay. Pistol Pete got out of LSU, his first shoes were Pro Keds. And, and some of those, the Pro Keds were suede, which were kind of cool. And the initial Pro Keds of Pistol Pete's had three stripes, which looked <laughs> very similar to Adidas. And uh, I'm, I'm sure uh, someone at Adidas took notice because not long after that, the Pro Keds became a two-stripe shoe. So I'm, uh, I'm sure someone uh, from Adidas uh, sent a little uh, legal note to- Nice uh, little letter. <laughs> to pro keds and uh, reminded them a certain copyright of a, a shoe style, I think. As far as the keds goes, I know uh, there's a 1971, I guess you could call it a basketball card set or a multi-sport set called Keds Cards. And mm-hmm. it's it's my understanding. I mean, I know there's Dave Bing. I know, I think Willis Reed is in there as well. It's my understanding. Those were just cut right off the side of the shoe box. Is that correct? That sounds right. I mean, those were pretty obscure. And I, I might've seen them on some shoe boxes at the time and not even thought of them as 
maybe being basketball cards someday. I mean, I was, you know, a young kid when those were coming out, so I wouldn't have thought that way. But so Pro Keds did have a couple of different styles of shoes and they had, you know, Kareem, they had Jojo White, Nate Archibald. So there, there was a number of players uh, that they had. Um, the ones that kind of caught our attention as young players, soon to be teenagers, were the suede ones. Those were pretty cool, like Pistol Pete wore and Nate Archibald was a big spokesperson for Pro Keds and kind of a, a style of his. And in fact, on his uh, 73 and 75 tops cards, Nate Archibald, he's wearing his high top, like a dark blue suede two-stripe Pro Ked shoe, which were pretty cool. Although I remember getting them and playing in them. Uh, and they were kind of heavy, you okay. know, especially compared to the Converse canvas, which was fairly light, although not very supportive either. If you're right. hours of basketball in, in them, but although that was just kind of what you had or what was affordable. And you know, again, the other aspect of it is a, is a young consumer different than the shoe market today, which we'll talk with talk about in a minute. But it was also a question of economics, right? Your parents weren't going to buy you some high end shoe right was the adidas leather was that you know more expensive at the time or or how would that compare to the canvas and the suede uh you know i don't recall them being dramatically different it was more of availability okay so it's kind of the equivalence of the kmarts or targets of the day or you know or uh, department stores where you would buy sneakers and sneakers in general right just not specifically for basketball you know not the super sporting goods stores like they have today or all the options at, at your fingertips online that kind of thing. So you kind of just had to go with what what was on the shelves there. And I was a kid at the time. So what you know, what were my parents willing and able to buy for me? Right. <laughs> what could you convince them that you needed? But but it, it was uh, also a supply thing. Uh, and I do remember you know, there was rumors of a place down in Cincinnati, which was about 45 minutes away, called Ben's Sporting Goods, which was kind of an old school inner city sporting goods store. But they had more of a wide range of variety. They had different kinds of Converse, even when Converse started coming out with some leather examples, like a two-stripe and a star. So the, the 71 Jim McMillan Pops card and the 71 Happy Hairston and Jerry West, they're all wearing that white leather Converse shoes. So Converse did start to come out with some leather as well as suede option, which again, this is all probably 70 to 74, 75. Now you mentioned Keds pursuing Pete Maravich coming out of LSU. Um, and then obviously, you know, we associate Converse with Dr. J and, and then later Bird and Magic Johnson. Yeah. Was Dr. J always a Converse guy or, or how did all of that come about? Do you remember that? Well, he didn't really switch to Converse till he got to the NBA. And I, I'm sure there's some Dr. J historians and, and fans that are listening to this. But if you see images of him playing in the ABA, except for a few oddball exceptions, it's usually in Adidas superstars. So the okay. leather Adidas, three stripes, high tops. You know, the Dr. J Converse that became a style that in and of itself you know, kind of a precursor to the bird and magic signing with Converse. That was kind of a precursor to what the uh, Jordan brand, you know, that style would mean to Nike. Now, obviously it didn't take Converse to a whole nother universe in terms of uh, shoes, but yeah, the Dr. J Converse, another, we, we kind of jumped ahead a little bit. So for, for Dr. J and, and the Converse style, which is a key shoe style introduction uh, mm -hmm. for sure, but there was also Puma and Walt Frazier. Okay. And so he was another key person to kind of have his own shoe style, his own shoe brand. You didn't see many others wearing Puma, but Walt Frazier, Clyde, the Clyde Pumas, 
which you can still get those today. They were the low-cut suede Pumas. And so okay. he switched from the Converse. I don't think it's on any basketball cards, but Walt Frazier, I remember, initially wore the canvas Converse Chuck Taylor, you know, the, the, the basic brand that most everyone wore. Although I do remember... Early in his Knicks career, he added some orange shoelaces to that, you know, with okay. the Knicks colors. And so, yeah. yeah, my buddies and I were zeroing in on all those kind of details. And um, so that was kind of a cool step where you could at least spice up things with your shoelaces. And yeah. we followed that lead. So you know, our high school was brown and gold. So we had either brown or gold shoelaces in our white Converse shoes. So we didn't need much of a, a cue from uh, someone like Walt Frazier to uh, try to make ourselves as cool as he was. When he switched to Puma, that was, and his own style brand of shoe, that was a, a key introduction, I would say, in the hobby. And his 72 all-star card, you got to look kind of close, but he's wearing the, the Clyde Pumas. Okay. Um, there's another shoe from the 72 set where Pumas are, are seen, and it's John Baum, B-A-U-M, John Baum okay. from uh, the New York Nets at the time. He's wearing Pumas on that card, too. Okay, guys, allow me to interrupt for a moment here to remind you that this show is brought to you in part by ComC.com, your home for buying, selling, and flipping all the hottest trading cards. Their consignment marketplace is home to over 29 million trading cards, from baseball superstars like Aaron Judge to Marvel favorites like Spider-Man. ComC has something for every type of collector. Visit ComC.com today to build your collection with your favorite cards. Now, you mentioned Walt Frazier and John Baum. I, those are both New York players. Was there a Puma presence in New York, or was it maybe just the fact that it's just a big city or or just a coincidence? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, th that would be an interesting question. Uh, again, everything was much less sophisticated than it is now, where you know now you might say maybe they had the same agent or something, and they worked out a you know, a deal for several players that that agent represented. And yeah, you, you got Walt Frazier, but then also take a couple of my other guys, you know, that, that goes on now in terms of, of branding and, you know, and those kind of uh, package deals, I guess you'd say, but you know, one other kind of shoe style, we kind of get up toward the, when Dr. J got to the NBA, that kind of was the timing to switch over to the, the Dr. J converse. I remember in the 77 finals, you know, the famous series with the Blazers and Walton beating Billy, Dr. J was wearing his you know, Dr. J converse. Now the year before, when he was winning the final ABA title with the Nets, he was wearing the uh, Adidas superstars. Okay. Something happened with the well, we can call it a merger. You and I know it wasn't a merger, but right. uh, when the ABA teams, uh, you know, folded in with the NBA teams, that's a whole nother, uh, you, you've done podcasts on that. I, I know I, I had Scott Tarter on the show and, and I, <laughs> I slipped and I called it a merger and he was very, very quick to point out, no, that was not a merger. So it's just <laughs> yeah. a general term though, that that's, you know, kind of been accepted. Right. Yeah. But I, I want to just want the uh, ABA uh, historians and fans like you and I are to know that I'm sensitive to using that word. Right. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so those are kind of the key shoes. The other one I made a note of is the 76 top, the, uh, the, the later tall boys uh, world be free has on some pretty cool red suede one star Converse shoes. And again, okay. shoes that would now be considered, you know, for fashion, uh -huh. you, know, you might somebody, you know, wearing them out and about rather than having them on in the basketball court. But, right. Uh, Playing that, at that the highest another, level. Yeah. That was another uh, kind of a cool example of a shoe on a card and especially a little out of the mainstream kind of shoe. Yeah. That really kind of takes us through the, let's say the late seventies when uh, Dr. J kind of made that transition. Now we haven't even talked about Nike yet. 
Yeah, actually, I mentioned to you before we were recording that there are memorabilia cards now that have pieces of shoes in them. And um, there are some players that really have barely any memorabilia cards, especially the older players. And one such player is is Connie Hawkins. And I noticed that in, on one of these cards, it's called Soul of the Game. So it's got the soul of the shoe. Well, I right. noticed on one of the copies, there was a purple Nike Air swoosh. I was born in 87. So Nike has always been around for me, but there was still something about that. I'm like, wait a second, this doesn't seem right here. Uh, and it turns out I, I did some research and, and the shoe was worn during an old timers game. So it, it was game worn, but not really NBA game worn. So anyway, that kind of sent me down this rabbit hole of, of Nike's origins and, uh, you know, it didn't all start with Jordan necessarily. So go ahead and, and tell us what you remember of the emergence of Nike. Sure. Yeah, Nike was kind of slow to the game, especially in, in relative to where they grew and, and where they are now. But the first card I remember seeing Nikes on were the, the 74 tops for Jeff Petrie. Okay. And which kind of makes sense because he was a Portland Trailblazer, Nike's headquarters uh, up there. So that that kind of made sense. You know, I, I know I've read some things where Spencer Haywood was involved early on Hi. with Phil Knight. And I think they had a, a potential understanding or partnership or he was going to be the first one to um, I, I may be a little off on the details, but I've heard it a couple of different times, a few different ways. But but for whatever reason, it didn't really take well, off. I, I think he turned it down. Uh, I think it was going to be something and I might not have the numbers right either. I want to say 10%. It was a significant amount of money, which now would, would be just an insane amount of money. No, you're right. It was some, yeah, some sort of either shares or, you know, some ownership, uh, some equity in, in Nike, which again, no one would believe it today, but at the time, you know, Nike, and I'm sure it'll come out in the movie that is going to be released here quite soon. Uh, I'm sure some of the history and I, and there's books. I, I haven't read it yet, but I know Phil Knight's book, Shoe Dog. I, I, I have it on my reading list. I just haven't gotten to it yet. And, you know, I've read about it through some other sources, but yeah, Nike then started to kind of really get more visible in probably the mid seventies. Okay. And, and, you know, and you can see it on different cards as well. Um, and, you know, they had the, the leather style with the swoosh, and then they also had some suede examples. But again, they were behind in terms of, I would say Converse still was evolving a, a little bit. Adidas, ProKeds had a segment. You know, when you got into the late seventies too, there was, uh, there was Pony Okay. Uh, as, as well, you know, there's the '77 Pops Norm Van Leer card. He's you look close. He's wearing ponies. Okay. Uh, the, I, I noticed on the David Thompson '83 Star Company All Star card where he's in a Sonics uniform, but he's wearing ponies on that card, and they're and they're pretty prominently visible. Uh, the '77 Tops Kevin Stakem is kind of interesting one because he looks like he's a throwback from uh, you know the, the older generation because he's wearing. Converse Chuck Taylor black, oh. uh, the canvas low cuts, which that that would have been an outlier then by '77. I, I don't know if anyone else in the league was wearing you know Converse that were the canvas style in, in those days, but that's kind of funny that that's on that card and you know it looks like it was plucked from you know 1967 rather than '77. <laughs> and then uh, again, there were a few other companies that tried to to creep in and and maybe get a little market share. The 78 tops Freddie Brown, Fred Brown, downtown Fred Brown, he's wearing beta bullets. 
which are are kind of a cool style. And Magic actually wore those some in college. In fact, in the famous Bird Magic game, Magic is wearing Beta Bullets shoes. Okay. I've never even heard of those. Yeah. Coach Wooden uh, was kind of their spokesperson, you know, after he retired from UCLA and, you know, tried to get them launched and uh, obviously not many people have even heard of them now. And the only example I really noticed on a basketball card was, was Fred Brown, but there were a few other players that wore them as well. Dennis Johnson, when he was a Sonic. So maybe again, they had some connection up to the Northwest and who knows, maybe some of the early Nike guys, you know, tried to spin off. And, you know, I, I think there's some history behind that. And again, I'm, I was probably a bit of a sneakerhead for my uh, era, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. you know, I think once the Air Jordans came out and, you know, from like the mid eighties on the, you know, what a sneakerhead uh, is and, <laughs> and be, became was far different than me just trying to find something kind of more cool than the, the standard Chuck Taylors that everyone was wearing. Well, I know Jordan's going to be kind of our cutoff here, but let's talk about the um, the move from just Nike in general. When you said they were kind of getting you know integrated into the league here, uh, the move from Nike in general, and then to the Nike Air with Jordan, uh, what do you remember about that whole emergence? Yeah, well, Nike was pretty good at promoting their brand, especially for basketball fans. So you probably have maybe seen some of those Nike posters of you know Supreme Court, for example, both a mm-hmm. whole group of players posed like on an outdoor court with you know, right. judges' robes on. And then there'd be individual ones that became cards uh, as well. I mean, those are, I guess, sort of considered cards mm-hmm. um, in a way, right? Because they were a little smaller than a five by seven, but yeah. they were out in the stores, I remember at the time. And not just basketball players, but the basketball ones were included there. I actually have one of them signed. I have the Bobby Jones. Uh, oh, okay. Well, I think it says Secretary of Defense. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, he's sitting at a, a government executive office. And so I have that one signed. Anyway, to your question, Nike put out some pretty cool things like that. So being a fan and collector, you know, to see those kind of things. And and obviously there's the George Gervin, you know, Iceman. That's an iconic mm-hmm. image and poster. So those are all Nike originated. So both players and groups of players. So they obviously started making inroads in, in the game for sure. And, uh, you know, it was mostly, though, just the white leather with the black swoosh. You know, they, it, it wasn't really anything too uh, exotic, you know, beyond beyond that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's when I'd say they probably, you know, really established their foundation. So eventually Nike latched on to Jordan. And um, what do you remember about that whole relationship or that whole partnership as it started? Was it something that... Uh, was an immediate hit or was it something that took people a little time to warm up to and, and kind of uh, abandon some of these older brands? Yeah, I think a little bit. You know, Nike had established themselves kind of like I'd mentioned before, at least in my view, with some of the cool marketing. And maybe they didn't have a bird or magic player that was transcendent, but just kind of how they portrayed themselves as being involved in the game with those Nike posters and, and players they had. And those are all really fun things to to look back on. Or, I mean, that, like I mentioned before, that George Gervin Iceman, that, that image is timeless, right? That's, mm-hmm. you know, as a basketball fan, that just lasts forever, you know, and, and there were other, you know, obviously less prominent ones, but that one was really cool as well. And, you know, many other players they promoted in, in that fashion. But yeah, I do remember some controversy when the first Air Jordans came out and you know there was concern that he wasn't able to wear them in, mm-hmm. in games because of the color scheme and so you know there was some you know again relatively 
<laughs> minor things in relation to some of the controversies that happen now. But no, I mean, Jordan was liked and soon to be loved to, and soon to be beloved in a, you know, in a global icon, right? It was, that was also on that track. And so w- there wasn't much to, to criticize about Michael Jordan, you know, and again, that was more on his individual accomplishments at that point, the, you know, his ability to be a high flyer and win dunk contests and things like that. I mean, obviously he won the title at Carolina, but then the Spike Lee, you know, Mars Blackman commercials. And so, you know, kind of that whole marketing scheme as well kind of added to the mystique. And 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 they had fun with it too, right? Those were fun mm-hmm. commercials and the, the whole vibe about it was pretty cool. And so certainly that launched Nike into a whole different level. And, you know, and again, what, and then uh, along with all this, you know, the Nike business of shoe contracts with coaches and colleges, and that's all going on kind of in parallel with, with that. Mm-hmm. Right, so Sonny Vaccaro, who's going to be a key figure, I assume, in this movie because he was the the main connection of Jordan to Nike, and you know he was a basketball hustler, promoter, had a legendary high school All Star game called the Dapper Dan Classic in Pittsburgh for many years. You know, kind of before the McDonald's game became you know the the primary event for that. So he was very strategic, uh, both in the Jordan part of it and then all these schools and shoe contracts. And again, there's a, a documentary in ESPN 30 for 30 called Soul Man, S-O-L-E, like okay. Soul Shoe, Soul Man about Sonny Vaccaro, which I would highly recommend. And there's been some books written about it. I think Soul Influence is a book. I think Dan Wetzel, okay. you know, a well-known sports writer, wrote. And um, so I, I'm, I'm interested to see how this movie portrays all of it. That's probably a good cutoff point in terms of the evolution of shoes. And first, I'm aware of a, a Jordan. Now, I, I, there could be some regional brands. And I know there's other uh, local cards that were issued of Jordan kind of early on. But as far as the first you know, mainstream issue, you know, the 86 Fleer sticker where he's wearing the Air Jordans, Mm-hmm. Uh, is certainly the card that I think kind of marks things changed after that, <laughs> you know, right. the, the world of basketball shoes and basketball players and shoes and basketball as a business. It really uh, all started on a whole nother path after that had happened. And you've got one of those with a, a beautiful blue signature on it, if I recall correctly. Well, I had it once. You, oh, okay. Uh, you had it. <laughs> yeah. I, I just sent you the picture from my archives, but yeah, I did have it signed at the time again with not much thought of future value, but yeah, a few of those cards uh, are what kind of propelled me into the business side of the hobby. I, I, you know, I do miss some of them, but you know, the trade-off to be able to do some of the things I've done because of that. Uh, and I still have some other Jordans that I, I like and enjoy as well, even though I miss a few of those. So that kind of takes us up to, you know, the, the Air Jordan launch and probably many listeners of yours, you know, that have every shoe that's been issued in the whole yeah. run of Air Jordans, you know, Jordan collectors that could kind of take the baton from here and, and run with it much farther than I, than I've taken. Well, and, and that's the great thing about this community, because we all kind of have our own area of expertise or our own experiences to bring to the table here. And that's why I love bringing guys like you here on the show. Tim, every time you come on, I, I learned something and, and today was no exception. So I, I really enjoyed that. I'm going to be going through some of my cards that I already own and looking at those and looking to see where I can find shoes and, and all the different brands that you've talked about. So we'll have to chat again sometime, of course. Before I let you go, though, I want to give you a chance to uh, give your social media handle and plug anything you're working on or anything you might be looking for 
These next few moments here are yours. Oh, thank you. Well, it's always a pleasure to be on with you. And I just love the cadence of your shows and enjoy listening to them. And of course, I'm honored to be a guest and help inform collectors. And, you know, I still am, am learning and fascinating, uh, you know, some of the history of it. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter and it's just at TimGal13. So at T-I-M-G-A-L-L-1-3. So that's probably the best way. You know, I'm a consignment director with REA Auctions. So if collectors have items they're either looking to acquire, uh, we've got some great stuff in, in all of our auctions. I know you've kind of followed it and I'll kind of direct you to some of the basketball content uh, from time to time, Kyle. And then uh, you've helped me also, uh, you know, since we've gotten to know each other, if there's some you know, oddball things, especially modern cards that I maybe am not as familiar with. You'll you'll kind of be a, a great reference point for some of those. But certainly if anyone has things to consign, uh, everyone's on a, some stage of their collecting journey, either upgrading or downsizing or some mix of that, uh, obviously, you know, for the higher end basketball related things of, of your listeners, we'd love to hear about it. So um, yeah, looking forward to the upcoming movie and you know, I, I also, I'd say since uh, of this topic, um, there's a book called Where'd You Get Those by Bobito Garcia, which okay. is kind of the history of the New York City sneaker and basketball culture. But it also is a great history of, of basketball shoes and, and kind of the evolution of, of them. Uh, there's there's a basketball card or two pictured in the book, but, it you know, many in-action shots and advertisements uh, of basketball shoes. One thing I didn't even mention, you know, we talked about now, Converse was such a key player, and especially you know for a number of decades, probably the '60s and '70s for sure. They used to publish a Converse basketball yearbook every year, okay. which would have every college, you know, a picture, a team picture, the roster, and a little capsule of the previous year's season that they had. They'd have their All American teams. They'd have every high school state champion pictured, mm. you know, team picture and you know, who they beat in the finals or what have you. And and just kind of like a farmer's almanac of basketball every year. And again, for someone like me that was trying to consume anything and everything, those Converse basketball yearbooks, you could probably find them on online for, for next to nothing. And they're, they're just really great snapshots in time uh, of of the game and, and so thorough and comprehensive. Probably good items to get signed too. Shout out to Converse for... Uh, for helping me uh, build my love of the game. Although I'm, I'm an Adidas guy, you know, I still play a little bit. So I, I, my preference is Adidas and I like the Adidas styles, but you know, I love it all. But if you had to pin me down, I'm an Adidas guy. All right. Well, uh, we won't tell the other brands that you said that and, and you're still allowed <laughs> to go see that Nike Air movie. So oh, Tim, I'll see it. Yep. <laughs> thanks again, Tim. I really appreciate it. All right, Kyle, take care. All right. Well, there you have it. I know some of you are going to see the air movie soon. I hope that gives you some good context going in. Maybe there was something we talked about today that resonated with you. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under at Wax Museum Podcast or Twitter under the handle at Wax Museum PC. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the website for my affiliate links tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.